pleased to say that I'm here, well, not in person, but on the the magic of the internet with Ellis Potter. Ellis, welcome to The Breakfast. Thanks very much, Clive. And it's not breakfast time with you at the moment, is it? No, it's seven in the evening. Seven in the evening. Have you had your dinner? Yes, I have. Okay. Well, we'll not discover what that is because... For the listeners' sake, we normally talk about the little breakfast, and uh, it'd be good to, to start with a little bit about your breakfast delights. Um, so, on your average day, what what do you eat for breakfast on your average day? What does that look like in in your life? On my average day, I eat nothing for breakfast. You eat nothing? No, I eat nothing. I, find, <laughs> I do most of my work in the morning. And uh, my mind works better on an empty stomach. I, I enjoy my lunch very much. And especially I don't eat breakfast on Sunday because I want my mind to be focused when I preach. <laughs> this can be a very quick conversation. Then. <laughs> okay. So what I found is in recent episodes, you find sort of, you know, particularly men saying, yeah, well, I, I kind of have this sort of oatmeal and healthy food, but you actually have nothing. So let, let's just imagine if we can then that you were to have your dream breakfast. If you were able to have breakfast and you have had breakfasts, what would be your ultimately, you know, amazing, gorgeous, delightful breakfast? My favorite breakfast is a California brunch. I am from California. And I used to have this sometimes, and I miss it very much. A California brunch is eggs benedict with melon slices mm -hmm. and tea or coffee and a California sunrise, right. which is a glass flute with half orange juice and half champagne and a little bit of syrup grenadine in the bottom of it, and it looks like a sunrise. Wow, that is, that's possibly the most extravagant one that I've heard yet out of 11 episodes. So that, you know, you, you're really making up for the fact that you don't normally have breakfast. That's amazing. So what about a breakfast that you wouldn't like at all? What would be a real nightmare, horrible breakfast for you? I would really not like okra stewed with tomatoes. Oh, what is that? Okra is a vegetable that grows on a vine in lots of parts of the world, and it's shaped like a very elongated acorn, and it's green. And it can be fried, in which case I actually like it, or it can be stewed with tomatoes, in which case I really don't like it. Right. That, that sounds, it does sound pretty gross. It does sound pretty gross, actually. So where would you find that in the world? Is that common in certain parts of the world? It's common in America, particularly in the South. Right. And I think you find it in the Middle East and maybe in Greece and North Africa. It's fairly common. It's right. called different things, of course. It wouldn't be called okra everywhere. Okay, what, what might it be called elsewhere? I, I don't know other names for it. I, I don't know the word in French or German because they, they never hear about it. Right, okay. It's a new one on me. 
So you've educated the Little Breakfast listeners with a, a new breakfast, unless obviously they're, they're much more aware of these things than me, which I'm sure they are. So moving on from uh, your breakfast delights, no breakfast, a fancy Californian breakfast, or another breakfast you don't like. For those of us who don't uh, know you, there'll be people out there that will know you and some that don't. Can you just tell us a bit about yourself? Yes, I am from California. I grew up in Southern California in a medium-sized town and did the normal things, went to high school and majored in extra extracurricular activities. And um, then I became a hippie. And that was a very interesting time during the hippie era. You can tell I'm old because I was a hippie. <laughs> And then I became a Zen Buddhist and uh, finally went to a monastery and lived as a monk, as a Zen Buddhist. And then I was traveling in Europe, visiting monasteries. And someone that I knew met with me, uh, apparently by accident, and they wanted to go to a place called La Brie Fellowship that had been founded by Francis Schaeffer. And I said, what is it? And they said, it's a community of Christians, and they think. And I oh. said, no. <laughs> and so I went with him. And I didn't like it very much, and I went to Italy for four months and studied the Japanese tea ceremony in Rome and visited monasteries and traveled and did some sightseeing. And then I came back to La Brie because my friend was still there, and I thought that the ideas I had heard at La Brie were so dangerously wrong that someone should go and help these people. <laughs> so I went as a missionary of Zen Buddhism to La Brie, and I'm a terrible missionary because I got converted. <laughs> and how many years ago was that now? I'm not sure I've ever asked you that question. That was about 40 years ago. It was in 1975. I guess it was longer than that. Right. And then I, I became a Christian at La Brie, and then I stayed there for 16 years and became a worker and a member and met my wife, and we got married. And then we came to Basel uh, because I was called to pastor a church and yeah. did that for 10 years. And then I changed, and I did mostly a traveling, teaching, preaching work mostly in Eastern Europe, because my wife and I had done a work uh, behind the Iron Curtain that was slightly underground. I can't tell you everything about it, of course. And then we fell in love with some people and the places of Hungary and Russia and Poland. And then I kept going quite often, and so did my wife. Yeah. And, and then... Um, my wife died about seven years ago, and I have continued traveling and teaching. And then 12 years ago, I became a pastor of a, an evangelical international church in Lausanne in Switzerland, which is three hours away from Basel. I, I only work part-time for the church, and I go twice a month to preach and have lunch with people. And I do some counseling by email and Skype and write daily letters, emails to the church and things like that. Yeah. And this last year, because of the coronavirus, I haven't been on an airplane for a year. 
And I used to be on an airplane at least six times a year or more uh, going different parts of the world. And so I've been at home and it's been a bit more quiet and stable, but I did write another book. And so it wasn't a complete loss. Yeah. So that's been a different era for you in this pandemic. Uh, you, you were living away from the, the vicinity of the church by being in Basel. And how has that worked out for you in terms of uh, preaching and connecting with people? Well, it's about the same, because all those years I went twice a month. Sometimes I would go Saturday and stay the night. Sometimes I would go on Sunday morning. And when I was traveling, we organized my preaching schedule around my traveling. And when I stopped traveling, this, the preaching schedule didn't change. So my relationship with the church didn't change in that way, but it's intensified because for some months we weren't able to meet physically together. And so I started writing a daily email for everybody and putting a thought in the email. And as I went on after a few weeks, I realized that these thoughts were adding up. And then after about four months of this, I collected a hundred of the thoughts into a book, and it's called Pastor Potter's Points. It's a hundred points in a hundred words on a hundred pages. Well, that's very uh, succinct. And I also um, started a new career videoing sermons and putting them on YouTube. Yeah. So actually, I, I used to preach one sermon a week or about three sermons a month because I preach in a church in Basel as well sometimes and now i preach two or three sermons a week well wow. because i preach a different sermon and a different program on online on youtube and in the two different churches so i have to really keep track of where i am and which group gets which sermon yeah you, you you're doing a lot of preparation and a lot of delivery these days so i haven't been doing any traveling but it's been busy enough yeah, sounds like. So in, in this episode, we're going to be thinking about truth. And I'm going to start with a really basic question, but obviously quite a clear question and an important question is, what is truth? Truth is reality, what actually is. Okay. And and it's complex. It would be uh, very time-consuming to make even a general rundown of the categories of reality. Yeah. And maybe a sub-question to that then, because obviously it's quite a very big subject, tackling that in its entirety without breaking that down a bit. It's, we can and you've spoken about and written about understanding truth from an objective and a subjective point of view how do, how do we understand objective truth well actually clive i don't believe in objective truth okay i believe in objective fact okay and many people think that truth equals fact but it doesn't yeah it equals fact plus meaning 
Right. And not everyone knows what meaning means. <laughs> we use the word a lot, but if you say, well, what does meaning mean? People just say, well, everybody knows, which means nobody knows. Yeah. Meaning means relationships. Yeah. Which means that nothing has meaning in itself. Okay. Which, for instance, the meaning of the color red is not in the color red. It's in its relationships with green and blue and yellow. Yeah. The meaning of Adam in the creation account was pointedly not in Adam. It was in his relationship with God, which was not enough. He also needed Eve. Yeah. And, and, and then there was the, the truth of Adam. The meaning of Adam was in his relationships and not in his existence. And the meaning of Jesus is not in Jesus. It is in his relationships with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So let me just go back on that point then. I mean, I... I totally agree with what you're saying, and I've heard you explain that before. Slightly different angle on it for me is, um, so when you say that you don't believe in objective truth, you believe in fact plus meaning. Is that right? I I believe in objective fact. Yeah. I don't believe that truth equals fact. I believe that truth equals fact plus meaning. Truth equals fact plus meaning. And that's because it has to be in relationship with that's something. Right. Yeah. And so what how does that relate then to subjective truth? Do you see that as subjective fact plus meaning? Uh, well, I don't believe in subjective truth either. <laughs> I'm a very difficult customer. I I believe that all truth is objective and subjective. Yes. So the, the fact of Adam was not good, but Adam in relationship with God and with Eve was good. It was true. So subjectivity is essential for truth. And that's why Jesus taught us to pray our Father and not my Father. Yeah. Because there has to be a community of subjectivity, at least two points of view looking at a fact yeah. in order for the situation to be true. Yeah. So what's the, so you use the word fact plus meaning. Are you suggesting that that's a fuller understanding of truth then? Or because you think, is it reductionary just thinking of truth without fact plus meaning? I'm sorry, could you say it again? Yeah, so you you use the word fact plus meaning as opposed to truth. And is that how you under, come to understand what truth is? Fact plus meaning is not opposed to truth. It is truth. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I guess what I was trying to get at there is when I asked you initially, how do you understand objective truth? You said you don't believe in and that's because you're saying that it's fact plus meaning. Right. Yeah. So I think that truth always includes objectivity and subjectivity. You have yeah. to have both. 
in, yeah. order, for, in order to have truth. So just to be clear on that, so it's not one or the other then? No, no, it's not one or the other. You don't have to choose. There's a marriage of yeah. objectivity and subjectivity, and then you have truth. Yeah, okay. So some people within society might think that meaning comes from just their subjective feelings. You know, I feel this, therefore it must be true. Uh, in one of your books, and I'm going to quote you here, and hopefully that will help you <laughs> bounce on the back of this. You say, I think our emotions, when they happen to us, are morally neutral, but we need to respond to them in moral, ethical, and faithful ways. And we should never trust them because they sometimes lie. Not always, but often. Could you maybe expand on that a bit? Well, yes. Um, there is a myth that has arisen mostly in the postmodern period of history. I think it existed earlier, but it's been emphasized that people's subjective imagining and feelings of what they need define them, that we in fact invent ourselves. Mm. But the Bible will not support that at all. Our identity is beyond our identity in relationships. We depend on others, on God and other people for our identity. It's not self-contained. And our identity is given to us. We don't manufacture it. We don't invent it according to our own imagination. We try to, and that is called sin. Mm. Yeah, so it seems to be that a lot of people within society, or some people will say, you know, I, I feel this or I feel that, and are they measuring meaning just simply then through emotions which you suggest can lie to you? Yes, they might be, and that would be an interesting question for them. Yeah. And regarding truth and the Bible, you, you say in one of your books again, in a similar way, the Bible includes two kinds of truth. One is accurate truth, the other is non-accurate truth. Now, if I was to put that up on a poster in a church, I'm sure some people might pull their hair out a bit of that if they don't understand it in context. But you go on and say, when the Bible gives us historical facts, they are accurate truth you can test. Could you expand a bit on that? Yes, well, when the Bible tells us that there was a Babylonian empire and Nebuchadnezzar was the king, you can do archaeological research and discover whether that was a fact or not. Yeah. But the parables of Jesus are not accurate. Yeah. They are windows onto reality through which each of us look from a different point of view. And some yeah. of them aren't even finished. So um, you, you cannot do research and find out the name of the mother of the prodigal son. Yeah. It's, it's not that kind of, of truth. It's not that kind of teaching. It's not yeah. a fact teaching. It's, a, it's more a relationship teaching. And so it's not accurate in a mathematical sense, 
but it's true. Yeah. Now that's really helpful. I found that really profound actually when I was reading that again, because it's, you're very right about the parables. You know, it's not a kind of a factual account of a, a man who has a father and a mother. I think that's really helpful. And it also, there's an element of, you know, the parabolic and creativity within that that, that mm-hmm. points us to truth, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. The, the parables are, of course, stories, and Jesus made them up, and they are windows through which each of us can see reality or truth from a different point of view. The truth doesn't change. It's stable, but we each have a unique point of view. Yeah. No, that, that, again, that's a great image, Ellis, you know, windows to which we look through. That, that's a really helpful image. So we might argue then, you, know, you said fact plus meaning. What, what's the relationship between truth and trust? Are they related? Would you agree with that or what would that look like? Yes, I would say that truth allows reasonable trust. Truth deserves trust and repays trust. Yeah. People can trust in all kinds of untrustworthy things, but truth is truly trustworthy. Yeah. Could you give any examples of that? Well, if we trust um, the weather to be sunny tomorrow for the picnic, that trust might be very much misplaced because we don't know what the weather is going to be. Or if we trust um, a social or political leader to be honest and wise, that might not be. And so uh, our trust can be very much damaged and we can lose the capacity to trust, which is, I think, basically the foundation of most mental illness, the the incapacity to trust, because many things in life are not trustworthy, but we do trust them. And then we get hurt. Yes. So the Bible, the Word of God, is trustworthy in what it says and what it teaches. It's not trustworthy in the way that I interpret it or apply it subjectively. It's trustworthy in itself. God is trustworthy because he keeps his promises. But he is not trustworthy to give me whatever I think I want. Yeah. So if I trust God to be in ways that he doesn't say that he is, that trust is going to be frustrated. Mm. But if I trust God to be and to do what he says, that trust will be validated. Yeah. So I'm just trying to work that one through. So in terms of obviously God is and his promises are true, but it, it's how we trust him and 
Is there something about what we might expect of God in that trust? I mean, you might be misplaced in your understanding of what people might think, oh, if I trust in this way, he will deliver in this way. Yes, that, that often happens, that people love the promises of God, and they love them in a mistaken way sometimes because they make them up. <laughs> Many times people read of an event in the Bible where someone was healed or someone was delivered from a difficulty, and that is a fact. It actually happened. It's true. But they take that as a promise for themselves, mm. which is not safe because that promise is not made. And if people trust God to keep that promise, which he has not made, then you can get into big trouble. Either you think, well, God didn't keep his promise, or God is a liar, or I am completely disconnected with God and don't know anything. And we get very, very frustrated and depressed in our in life when we do that. Yeah, that's so true. So how do we how do we trust God? How do we grow in our trust of God? I think the first thing is to be very careful to understand what he has actually promised. Yeah. So that we can avoid trusting things that are not real. And that will help us to be stable in our trust. Yeah. And the main thing that God has promised, it seems to me, is to keep us. Mm -hmm. That we belong to him and he will keep us and he will never let us go. He hasn't promised until Jesus appears again to heal us or give us a good job or give us a good wife or husband or healthy children. He hasn't promised any of those things. It's a broken and fallen world and the rain falls on the just and on the unjust. And bad things happen to Christian people. But he has promised to keep us and to sustain us through all the circumstances through which we live. And that is a promise that we really should look to and cling to that God has promised to keep us and we will never be lost. So do you think, do you think that if people have a sort of over-realized eschatology that they think that all this inheritance is theirs now then there's a there's going to be room for clear frustration there isn't there because there isn't really an understanding that as you said he's keeping us but presumably that is with the the view that there will be all things made new and hope in him in in the future yes i i think so because people naturally want God to give them what they want. That's yeah. a really natural thing. But we're not supposed to be natural. We're supposed to be spiritual. Yeah. A spiritual view of life includes eternity and is in the context of eternity and not just now or during my lifetime. Yeah. So if I expect all of God's promises to be realized, as you say, in my lifetime, 
I'm going to come into serious trouble <laughs> because they're not going to be. God's promises are true and they will be realized in eternity. In eternity, I will not get sick. I will not be sad. I will not be frustrated. Uh, all of the difficulties uh, will be gone and there will be love and creativity and productivity and life will be entirely good. But that doesn't happen in this present age. We wait for the age to come when Jesus appears and the kingdom is realized. But with that in mind, as a, as a pastor, do you see pastoral issues that arise from not having that right biblical view? Oh, yes, very frequently. People, um, people are broken and sinful and wounded and scarred, and it's very difficult to see clearly through all the pain. Yeah. And, and how, does, how does one help such people in uh, such pain? Well, I would say, first of all, to sympathize with the pain, because it's real pain. They're not imagining that they're uncomfortable or suffering. And to, to listen to them and to be sorry for the suffering that they actually have. And, and then, after you have established a relationship and gained a bit of trust, to try to bring their mind into context with God's actual promises and this, the perspective of eternity and to see if that might help. And in some cases it does help and in some cases it doesn't help. And in some cases it helps quickly and in some cases it helps after years. Mm. So in a community of God's people, there is that uh, personal relationship that somebody has uh, this faith and belief and walk with God through Jesus. And there is that community of believers. And what we've been talking about is that trusting of, of God. But how, how does that work out in terms of trusting other people? How do we, how do we trust other people? How does, how does knowing God help us trust other people? I'm not sure that knowing God helps us to trust other people because other people are largely not trustworthy. Yeah. And fantasizing that someone is trustworthy when they're not is a recipe for disaster. Yeah. So trust is something that is earned and developed in relationships. And you get to know people and you see their behavior and you realize, oh, they're consistent and they've never failed to do this and they show up on time or they listen to me and they're sympathetic. And so I, I can trust them to do that. Now, they might fail, but generally they are trustworthy to behave in those ways. Yeah. So, so yes, what you're saying there is, you know, it could be that I or somebody takes a position where we presume, for instance, that somebody has the label Christian goes to church, um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're trustworthy. No, in, in various ways. I mean, 
if I go to a church and I meet people and I trust that they will fully understand and sympathize with all of my experiences and attitudes, I'm going to be pretty frustrated. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it would be lovely and we would like that and we want that. And many people want it so strongly that they become convinced that it is a reality. Yeah. And then that leads to a disaster. Because people are not perfect and churches are not perfect. But we, we really have trouble with that because God is perfect. He made a perfect world. He wants it to be perfect. And it's broken and destroyed, damaged, twisted by sin. And God has promised that it will be perfect again. Yeah. So people consider that promise and then they say, well, that God is true and God is all-powerful. And so that promise will be received now. And the Christian community will be perfect now. But that's a mistake. Mm. That, that's really helpful, Alice, because I think in my own mind, I know that to be true regarding things like healing, that I might look at somebody's perspective and, and say, you know, they think that we have this inheritance now and everyone should be healed. But, but I think when it comes to relationships and helping one another, I mean, of, of course, you know, they're not perfect. But maybe there's a sort of idealism at times within the Christian community that I think we know that they're not perfect, but maybe we aspire to that. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I think the hope is something we should have. Yeah. That love hopes. And so we should hope for these things, but we shouldn't declare that they are fact. Yeah. We should work for these things. We should be a part of the solution of the problem. We should be trustworthy so that trust and love and hope can increase. But we shouldn't just declare that it's perfect. And in relation to that, I mean, talk about love. Remember, you, you've been over to... Edinburgh and you've been to Cutlass and Community Church and Colin and I were talking to you, um, Colin is the other pastor at Cutlass and about church and what you thought about church and, and you said, you know, that that you know a hallmark of a a healthy church is that you know that we love each other. Um so I guess that is a how does that work in relationship to truth and, and trust? Well, when we love each other, then we expect the best and hope for the best and work for the best. And when someone does wrong, we don't pretend that it didn't happen, but love covers it over and we don't dwell on it. And we don't blackmail people by reminding them of what happened that, that was wrong. We move on in hope. Yeah. No, that's really helpful. So at the moment, we're living in somewhat challenging days regarding the current pandemic. Uh, do you have any reflections on what's happening right now? Any wisdom that you 
can share with us in relation to what's what's going on um, or not? <laughs> well, what's going on is unique in most people's lives. And so it seems very special, but it has happened before. Within the last 100 years, or certainly 150 years, there have been international plagues. So it's not really a unique situation. And whenever something like this happens, people often tend to think, well, this is the end. That this is the last event of history, and then Jesus will appear and, it, and we'll have a new beginning in the new heaven and the new earth. But these kinds of things have happened so many times before that it seems to me they might happen several times in the future and that we, we cannot be sure that this is the end. We only know what we are experiencing. Yeah, and you're living in Switzerland. How are people interpreting the current times there culturally? I mean, is there any observations of that? Interpreting in the sense of the meaning of history or the supernatural connection of history? Uh, well, really just in terms of the fact that they were living, you know, we were living without a pandemic and now we have this pandemic that affects our lives in different ways, even on a practical level of restricting movement and not being able to go to work or working from home. You know, there's a lot of change and adjustment, isn't there, that, that people are having to live through um, yes. in the Western world. And, and I, suppose, I suppose there's a physical, practical sort of challenge there. It, you know, in, we're here in the UK. I wouldn't say that, you know, my neighbours are sort of knocking on the door saying, you know, I need to know more about Jesus. Um, but actually, there is definitely changes that are going uh, around where people are saying, well, maybe how are we treating the planet or, you know, have we been trashing the planet? You know, but not not sort of deeply spiritual questions about who Jesus is, but more a case of, you know, life is different and maybe we've been living too fast and too busy and maybe we've been um, maybe not treating the earth as well as we should. I don't know if there are any conversations like that in Switzerland or anything in, in relation to that. There are a variety of conversations in Switzerland, but I don't know that I could say that the the nation as a whole has a particular angle or a particular issue that that this brings into focus. Yeah. There there are people who um, become more intensely ecological uh, because of the coronavirus, whether that is a rational connection or not, but but it does happen. Yeah. But I, I don't think the Swiss people generally are making universal wide spectrum associations. They're a very practical people. <laughs> How does their how, how does that look in terms of their practicalities? Surely their their, their lives have been impeded with practical decisions. Yes, well, they're they're practical in that they they do what is necessary, 
And they're not generally very romantic. They're pretty down-to-earth people, especially in the mountains, of course. Yeah. But, but also on the flatland as well. And they do what needs to be done. Yeah. So they just kind of get on with it. Yes, they, they kind of get on with it, but they think, well, now what are we doing about this? What measures are we taking? Are we protecting enough? Are we protecting too much? What is the right way forward? There's a lot of discussion about that. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's just interesting because I think, I think here in the UK, there is a big focus on death, really. Um, you know, how many people have got the virus? How many people are dying per day? How can we prevent death? You know, and it just seems quite that's quite a very big, the very big story in the news is just, you know, death, death, death. And a lot of people are talking really about how we can keep safe um, in that regard. You know, so I wonder whether different media's outlets around the world focus on different aspects of it. Um, but I'm not, not yes, really sure. I think so. The yeah. people aren't prone to fear. Yeah. As far as I know them. Um, death is always a reality and everybody dies. And there's a certain fear of death. But I don't think that people have become fearful or anxious, particularly. When I go downtown, people are as normal. They put on a mask if they go on the bus or the tram. They put on a mask when they go into the shops. They, they basically keep a social distance um, when, when they're downtown in a crowd. But people who know each other come right up to each other or even hug. Oh right! No, you wouldn't get that. You wouldn't get that here <laughs> because um, they've been exposed to each other anyway. Yeah. So you go downtown, and and people who know each other or who are in each other's houses or are related, they hug in a normal way, and uh, most people don't shake hands, but you do see it. Yeah. Because, I mean the the thing that disturbs me most about the way the coronavirus is dealt with is that it's making people afraid of each other. Yeah. And I see not so much of that in Switzerland. I would say there's a lot of that here. Is there? That's the bad. Yeah, there's very much a cautiousness. Um, and, and as I say, you know, there's, a, there's quite a lot of fear through the media. It's very much about how you keep yourself safe and don't die, basically. Um, and I don't know if that says something about the British culture. <laughs> well, sure, the emphasis is on keeping other people safe. Yeah. yeah well, that's interesting, isn't it? Well, yeah. I, I'm quite refreshing and actually Christian. Yes. So yeah. You don't wear a mask so much to protect yourself because yeah. you may already have had the coronavirus and have immunity in yourself, but you might be contagious. And so you might harm others if you don't wear a mask. And so the mask is to protect your neighbors. Yeah, I, th I think there's definitely an element of that here, but, I, you know, th there's a big sort of, I don't just focus on, you know, making sure you're safe, your family's safe. 
and yeah. and, it, and you know it's there is a big kind of health and safety push you know which is but i do think this emphasis on death and fear of dying is is quite an interesting one you know that's coming through um because because it seems like you know the savior would be a vaccine that would you know would prevent you from dying but obviously that's clearly not true because you're going to die yeah so just kind of moving towards a close then alice um i'm sure that people have had to pause and rewind a few times because you're always coming out with deep nuggets to chew on uh but as people have fast forwarded to this bit and we move towards a close you um have written a few books and you've just finished a book do you want to tell us a bit about those books and where people maybe can find them online Yes, if you go, if you Google my name, it will lead you to some books. If you go to Amazon UK or anywhere else and go to books and put my name, you'll find the books. Um, most of the books are in paperback and ebook. Um, the first book is also, uh, the first book is called Three Theories of Everything, and it's a comparison of different basic worldviews. It's in hardbound. And the most recent book, Pastor Potter's Points, is in paperback and also in hardbound with a slipcover. And uh, it's going to be an ebook next week. So you have a variety of ways that you can get them. The second book um, is about epistemology, which some people think is a blood disease or something, but it's, it's actually about how we know. And uh, it's in paperback. It's called How Do You Know That? Yeah. Clues you in that it's about, about knowing. There is a biography that was um, done by the Hungarian publisher that's in, in paperback. And it's called Staggering Along with God. And there is a book uh, called The Cloud of Knowing which is a response, in a way, to the book The Cloud of Unknowing, which is uh, historically a very important book because it's one of the two books uh, written in the English language in the 14th century. The other one was The Canterbury Tales of Chaucer. So it's, it's really foundational for English literature. And it was uh, it's basically a platonic view. It's called the cloud of unknowing. And the basic thesis is that God is other, completely other from the creation. And in order to know God, you need to forget everything else. Yeah. Because it clutters up the picture. You need to know God directly without the interference of the creation and people and, and things like that. And I don't believe that. I believe that we know God by knowing each other. We love God by loving each other. So it's a little bit in response to that book. But basically, uh, The Cloud of Knowing is a study, a Bible study, from Genesis through Revelation, of the appearance of the Shekinah glory, the cloud of the glory of God, at the Exodus, the cloud, at the Red Sea, um, at the uh, the taking of Elijah into the supernatural, the cloud that had enveloped him, the cloud of the Magi 
who saw this, who saw the cloud and called it a star and followed it to an actual house that the the star hovered over the house where Jesus was. Well, a star, of course, couldn't do that, but the the Shekinah glory of God could. The cloud of the transfiguration and the cloud of the ascension that Jesus was received into the cloud, but it wasn't water vapor, it was the Shekinah glory. And so it's a basic Bible study of these cloud experiences and phenomena throughout the Bible that gives, I, I hope, a clearer picture mm. for people. So there's the three theories of everything. How do you know that? The cloud book, the, the biography, um, staggering along with God, and then this last book is called Pastor Potter's Points. There's, yep. a, there's a book on spirituality that should come out in the next year, and it goes with the three theories of everything and how do you know that as a trilogy right so the the only one apart from your new one that i haven't read is the one about the cloud actually i don't know how i missed that one but um i should go and check that one out it's interesting isn't it the imagery how in the bible often certain imagery is repeated isn't it yes oh yes uh many threads go through the whole bible and, and hold it together as it were that's really helpful um so yeah so go and check that out online and just as i um come to a close then with ellis thanks so much uh for your time ellis i really appreciate that um through the powers of the internet and skype we're recording this on skype there's been a little bit of snap crackle and pop a couple of times um due to slightly dodgy headphones on my end um but Ellis has come up with a lot of things and you can uh, find out more about The Little Breakfast on our Facebook page and you can comment or ask questions on that uh, and it would be great if you could um, check out the Facebook page for The Little Breakfast and Ellis, if anyone's got any questions for you, how do they get hold of you? Are you okay with that? Yes, um, I have a YouTube channel that's called Ellis Potter Dash pastor um or i post things on facebook every day so yeah. there are ways of, of getting in touch with me okay well that's great so people can get in touch with you if they go through those means and they can also um listen to this and on apple and on spotify tune in and you can even ask alexa to play the little breakfast podcast and you'll hear it on that too so thanks again for your time ellis thanks so much Thank you, Clive, and God bless you, and God bless everyone in Kirkliston. Yes, thanks so much for that, and uh, we'll uh, we'll look forward to hearing from you again. Thank you very much. 